today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. Pause right there for a moment. Do you realize what he's saying here? Though I try to serve the Lord, and though I may be gifted in in many ways and in many areas of ministry, but I don't have that agape love, and it's like a clanging cymbal. If I don't have that kind of love, even as, again, I have the gift of prophecy, uh, I have knowledge, man, my faith is growing, I have so much faith, I could move mountains, but I don't have that kind of a love for the people that are around me. He says, I'm nothing. God's not impressed. The Bible teaches that if we do not have love, we do not have anything. In today's message, Pastor David breaks down this very important truth in practical terms. If we have an amazing ability to teach the Bible, but we do not deliver the truth with love, we gain nothing. If we give all that we have to the poor, but we do not love our neighbor, the Lord is not impressed by our generosity. If we have all knowledge and understanding, but do not have love, our words will sound like a bothersome noise. Now here's Pastor David with part one of his message, this crazy little thing called love. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control add perseverance, to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness add love. For if these are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. And I know that we've been on this passage for a while. As a matter of fact, I believe this is the third week that we've been on this same little section of Scripture as we've gone through these various virtues or characteristics or traits that Peter says that we need to diligently add to our faith. This idea of adding to our faith virtue, or as we looked at that idea, that understanding, this moral excellence within our lives, and then keep adding to them knowledge, and that's a relational knowledge, and knowledge as we grow in our relationship with God. Self-control, in other words, having self under control, uh, our, our selfish ambitions, all of our pride, our, our, our fleshly desires, having those things under control. Then there needs to be that perseverance in our lives, that perseverance that's, that's mixed with endurance as we run this obstacle course, as we run this marathon race that, that we call life, that we'd have that kind of a perseverance, that kind of endurance to keep us on track, keep us in the race, even in the midst of all kinds of trials that might and will come our way. 
And then he says also to add godliness. And again, as we shared last week, that godliness is our continual movement in relationship, in the vertical relationship, us and God, but also in a horizontal relationship, us and the people that are around us. If you have godliness in only one of those ways, then you're missing the boat. It's a godliness in relationship to God, also a godliness in how we deal with the world that's around us. Now, we've dealt with all of those things over the last couple of weeks, but now we're going to look at the other, the final two that he speaks of. The first six of them deal primarily with an interworking within our lives. But the final two deal mostly with an outer working in how we deal with the world around us. Peter says that we need to add these final two, brotherly kindness and love. Now, each of these things actually deal with an attitude or direction or a heart or a depth of love. Peter is actually using two of the four forms of the word love that are used in his culture. It's fairly simple to understand, but sometimes very difficult to accomplish what Peter is speaking about here. Let's face it, in our English language, uh, in our current culture, we pretty much use the same word when we deal with our affections toward our spouse, when we deal about the fondness of our favorite sports team, even if it is the Broncos, (laughs) when we deal with any kind of a personal delight that we have in any kind of worldly pleasure. A number of years ago, actually in the early 70s, A country western singer that many of you might recall, Tom T. Hall, uh, wrote a a particular song called, And I Love You Too. Now, some of you might remember that. I don't myself. It was way before my time. I think my parents played it quite a bit, but uh, consider the words of this song. I love little baby ducks, old pickup trucks, slow-moving trains, and rain. I love little country streams, sleep without dreams, Sunday school in May, and hay. Oh, and I love you too. I love leaves in the wind, pictures of my friends, birds of the world, and squirrels. I love coffee in a cup, little fuzzy pups, old TV shows, and snow. Oh, and I love you too. I love honest, open smiles, kisses from a child, tomatoes on a vine, and onions. I love winners when they cry and losers when they try, music when it's good, and life. And I love you too. Now guys, as romantic and emotionally moving as that song may be, that that you don't tell your spouse or your loved one, that you love them as much as you love a bucket of fried grits, okay? (laughs) Somehow it's just not going to make the same meaning, the same understanding. That's why the Greek culture, this crazy little thing called love, they actually had four different terms that they used for that. Now, we look here and Peter says brotherly kindness and love. That's two of those four terms, and we'll look at those in a moment. But the first two that I'm going to mention to you, the actual word for them isn't found in our Bibles, but the expression or the attitude uh, of them is actually found throughout Scripture. The first one of these is eros, eros. 
And that's a physical or a, a sensual type of love. And that's a love that was designed by God. It was designed by God, though, to be expressed solely between a husband and a wife. And we see this idea, not the word, but the idea of it in the Old Testament book, the Song of Solomon. Now, if you take the opportunity to to read that book and to understand it, you realize that the Song of Solomon is a little bit more than G-rated. When you really understand what he's speaking there, he speaks of some very intimate and some very personal things that are being written and, and described there. But eros is also many times expressed outside of the plan of God. And that's where the enemy really gets the opportunity of ripping people off. Rips off not only young people, but older people also. When they take this understanding and and try to find a fulfillment of these physical desires that God has planned, purposed, and designed us with, they take those physical desires and they move it in through any type of sexual relationships outside of marriage. This is the very word that we get our word erotic from. And although the actual word is never used within the Bible, there are a lot of warnings about the wrong uses of eros. We find that all throughout, not only the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, many places there where the father is encouraging the son, be careful to remain sexually pure. Be careful that, that again, your eyes don't wander again to, to someone else other than your own spouse. And then in the New Testament, we have many opportunities where, again, it speaks of remaining sexually pure. God designed this for good, but in man's rebellion, it's all too often being used for evil. The second Greek word that's used or translated or could be translated simply as love, though it's, the word, again, is not in our Bibles, the word is storge, storge. Storge is, is more the idea of a, a family love, the, a bond between mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers, that family love and care and concern. And again, though the word isn't used, the idea is found both Old Testament and New Testament. We find this family affection in, in the life of Noah and his family, the care and concern that he had that his family would be with him there in the ark. We find it also in the life of Abraham for Lot, his nephew. He cared about Lot, and that's why he asked the Lord not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, because he knew that Lot and his family were there, and because of that care, that love, that storge type of family uh, 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 concern and love for them, he asked that it wouldn't be destroyed. In the New Testament, we also see Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Remember when Lazarus died, and they they weeped. Why? Because of their care and their love for him as a family member as their brother. So we see storge in actual working and and the usage, but not necessarily the the exact word. These traits, these characteristics, these that we see working, the, uh, the Greeks understood those. And I believe that Peter, even as he wrote, he understood those also. But he only used the final two that we'll look at in what we need to add to our Christian life. The characteristics of brotherly kindness and of love. Now, the word that's translated brotherly kindness, and depending upon your translation, it might be brotherly affection, it might be mutual kindness, it actually comes from the Greek word Philadelphia. 
Now, we touched on that just for a little bit last week, but we really didn't go into it. It's really a compound word coming from a combination of two Greek words, philos and adelphos. Let me take the last portion of it first, adelphos. The direct meaning of adelphos means of or from the same womb. In other words, as a brother or as a sister. But it's the idea of a relationship of a brother and even beyond that, even to the same ancestry, belonging to the same people, belonging even to the same country. And within the context of the Bible and within the church, it deals with you and I as fellow believers. We are of the same country now. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been born again in Christ, and so we become brothers and sisters. So that's the second part of the word. The first part of Philadelphia, the word philos or philia. This is actually the third word for love in the Greek culture. To the Greek, it carried with it that meaning of a deep and abiding affection, uh, such as a a close friend, a best friend, one that, uh, again, knows your heart, knows your attitudes, knows your mistakes, knows your warts, and loves you anyway, okay? Someone that walks with you through every trial that you might have and stays loyal to you and encourages you, yeah, even in those bad days. It's that kind of relationship, not related necessarily by family, not related by marriage, but just close, intimate relationship of a best friend. We see that in the Old Testament with the very idea of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. James writes about it in the New Testament with Abraham's relationship actually with God. James says in James 2.23, he says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And Abraham was called the philos of God, the friend of God. It's the very idea also that the Apostle Paul speaks to us in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, verse 10, Paul writes, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. And here, Paul uses that same combination of the two different words to express that kind of care, that kind of concern that we need to have for each other as believers. When he says, be kindly affectionate, He's actually using that that combination of the words philo with storgus. So a brotherly and a family kind of a love for each other. Again, that leads us to the last of the traits that Peter tells us here. That last characteristic in our lives as believers that we need to add to our faith. That seventh virtue. Peter says in verse 7 here, he says, To godliness add brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness add love. The fourth style, the fourth characteristic, the fourth word that the Greeks used in their culture. And this is, if you've been a believer for very long, you've probably heard the word agape, agape or agapeo. Again, this is a deep, deep love. This is a self-sacrificing love. This is a love that goes deeper than eros, because it's without thought of or without any kind of expectation of any kind of personal fulfillment or gain. Agapeo is much wider and it's even deeper than the family type of love, of storge. And it goes even beyond the commitment 
and the bonds of philo. All of these, of all of these, agape or agapeo is the deepest, most intimate, most complete kind of love. It is an absolute self-sacrificing love. There's nothing in it for me. It's all for you. The reason I love you many times is even in spite of you because I've committed to love you. Completely selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. The highest of the four types of love spoken about in the Greek culture or in their language. It's the type of love that's spoken about when we think of the love of God. The love of God is the agape of God. Throughout the New Testament, we we, we see it mentioned over and over and over again in that understanding that it is the deepest of all loves. John records the very words of Jesus in John chapter 15. If you want to turn there with me, in John 15. And here we have the words of Jesus to the disciples. Now, as he's speaking to the disciples, understand the time frame and the context. This is on the night that he was betrayed. This is in the upper room, and Jesus is pouring into these disciples in the last of the ways that he will be doing it in his earthly ministry. And in John chapter 15, down in verse 9, Jesus says these words to his disciples. He says, as the Father agapeoed me, as the Father has loved me, and he uses that word agapeo, I also have agapeo you. Abide in my agape, same word, different tense. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my agape. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his agape. And then down in verse 13, we read these words. Greater agape has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his phileos, phileos, for his friends. The great deep love of agape, laying down even the life for the friends. To help us differentiate between types of loves, many places in the King James Version, they translated that word agape into the word charity. So if you have your King James Version this morning, you, you have that word charity used quite often. It's that great passage of love in, in 1 Corinthians that, again, we, we read of the attitude of how this love needs to be. In 1 Corinthians, do you remember what chapter that might be in? 13, the chapter of love. How many times we hear that in a marriage ceremony where they use 1 Corinthians 13, and, and, and as great as that is in a marriage relationship, and I would have to agree, absolutely, definitely, we need to bring that into mind in a marriage relationship, but it's beyond marriage relationship. It's in our lives, you and I as believers, we need to live our lives with the understanding of agape love. In this passage, Paul, first of all, explains the importance of having this type of love. And he says, even in the areas of ministry, the importance of having that kind of love. You might think about it even in our religious experience. And though I I don't really like that term, I understand what it means. It's it's our work in, in serving the Lord here in this place. And Paul brings out 
the impact of needing to have agape love even as we serve the Lord. Listen to what he speaks about here in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. Paul says that though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not agape, I have become sounding brass or a clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not agape, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not agape, it profits me nothing. Now let's pause right there for a moment. Do you realize what he's saying here? Though I try to serve the Lord, and though I may be gifted in in many ways and in many areas of ministry, but I don't have that agape love, and it's like a clanging cymbal. If I don't have that kind of love, even as, again, I have the gift of prophecy, uh, I have knowledge, man, my faith is growing, I have so much faith, I could move mountains, but I don't have that kind of a love for the people that are around me. He says, I'm nothing. God's not impressed. He speaks on, he says, even if I live in areas where I'm sacrificing some, I'm, I'm feeding the poor. And even though I'm willing to be martyred for my faith, and Peter understood what that was all about because it was happening in his day, I'm willing to give my body to be burned for my faith. That's again in the vertical relationship. But I have not agape in the horizontal. It profits me nothing, nothing. He's really clear that without agape type of love being lived out in our lives, it becomes absolutely empty. It becomes religious exercise. The very thing that Jesus told the Pharisees that, that, that was just sickening. Looks good on the outside, but in reality, it's not true on the inside. And then Paul goes on to describe what this type of love actually looks like. We, we look at those first three verses and say, well, I, I think I have that kind of love. I, I, I think I do, and, and I'm ministering here, and I, I do believe that I have that kind of love. Okay, let's look at the checklist with me, okay? Beginning in verse four, he says, agape, this is what agape looks like. Agape suffers long and is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Agape does not behave rudely and it does not seek its own. It's not provoked and it thinks no evil. How are you doing on your checklist? Agape doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Sometimes it has to rejoice in the truth even when the truth hurts. The truth is spoken into our hearts and It might not be what we want to hear, but thank you for sharing with me the truth. Thank you for speaking the truth in my life. Though it's going to have to make a change in my life, I'm glad to hear it. It rejoices in the truth. 
It's easy to overlook the smaller books of the New Testament, such as this short letter of 2 Peter. That's why it's so great to have a teaching like the one you heard today, where Pastor David was able to remind us of its importance and take us deeper into the meaning behind the words. If you want to keep studying through these audio messages, Pastor David is here to share with you how you can do that. Thanks, Chris. The Open Word has an archive of previous messages ready to be listened to, downloaded, and shared at theopenword.com. Simply click on the teachings link at the top of the page. You can also take the Open Word with you as you go by subscribing to our podcasts. This can be done through our website or by searching for The Open Word on iTunes. By subscribing, you'll have sound biblical teachings with you anytime and anywhere. Thanks, Pastor David. In his letter, the Apostle Peter spoke forcefully of the coming day of the Lord, where the earth will pass away and everything here will be gone. He gives us instruction on how we should live in light of this fact and encourages us to diligently pursue godliness. These teachings from so long ago are still practical lessons for living a godly life that we need to study and apply today. We hope you've been encouraged, but also challenged to go deeper in your walk with Christ. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor David's message. Be sure to join us again to continue studying 2 Peter right here on The Open Word. Make us more.